You're listening to the Sojourn Mantras podcast. We're currently in the book of Philippians. For more sermons and content, go to sojournmantras.com. We're going to dive into this morning's text, and um, what, what I want us to do just quickly is sort of have a framework for, for where we've been, because it, it has so much to do with now where we're going. Um, and so uh, what we've seen thus far really is that, that the, the gospel is something that is, that is filled with hope and that, and that it's something that, that is advancing and that it is something that unites people who are strangers and who are really sort of at opposite ends of the spectrum, that in the work of Jesus, he draws people near, that he creates peace where there was strife, that he, that he creates sort of really a, a new city, a new society, a new understanding of how we now interact when we fall underneath the reign and rule of Jesus. And, and we really saw that that's, that's honestly most exemplified, or at least the, the path to following Jesus is most exemplified, obviously, in Jesus. And so last week we saw the great links to which Jesus went to secure for himself us, really, right? Like those of us who have called upon his name for salvation, that we are his people purchased by his blood. And um, so what we're going to walk into now uh, in terms of uh, some more, I guess, imperative um, reading, uh, meaning more things for sort of us to do, right? I want us to, to come from the place where we understand that in, in chapter one, it told us already that the good work that Jesus began, he's going to complete. And so let's just, let's step into this, into this time where we talk about obedience, where we talk about humility and things like that. And let's just know, or let's find rest in what it is that Jesus has already secured on our behalf. Um, and so let me just confess to you this morning that um, anytime a pastor gets up to preach, like they also have a thing called life that they deal and navigate with and through. Um, and I've just got to admit, like this morning, I'm a little bit weak in terms, and, and I don't mean weak, like physically or even, even emotionally speaking. I just don't, for whatever reason, like, I, I don't know if it's just the, the weight of the text or my, my great desire that this would be like true of us or, or if it could just be true of me. Um, like, I, I just think all of it for whatever reason is, is just kind of weird on me today. And so just know that. And I'm going to do my very best like to explain what I believe the Lord would have us to take from this. And I'm just going to pray that the Spirit would do what only He can do. And that's um, make, us, make us aware, cognizant of just how palpable this truth is um, in our lives. So let me pray and then we'll get started. Father God, we thank you so much. Uh, we thank you for the opportunity to come before you and worship you. Lord, knowing that uh, we not only have the opportunity to praise, but Lord, that our praises are acceptable to you because of the cleansing work of Jesus on our behalf. Um, Lord, I just pray that we'll stand in that, Father, that, um, that we can truly just sort of say, God, that, that all of the power, all of the glory, all of the kingdom is yours and is for you. And Lord, I pray that um, as this morning, as, as Paul calls the Philippians to obedience, Lord, that we would also be called to obedience, that we would be called to humility, and Lord, that we, we would be called to a life that glorifies and magnifies you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so um, there's a direct connection um, from, from last week. And I, so I'm going to read a little bit from last week's text just so that we see exactly where this is coming from. Because no matter how weighty you know, this is, and no matter how daunting it may seem, and 
and no matter how little evidence we see of this text being true in our community right now, like at Sojourn, um, I think the, the, the fact of the matter is, one, that, that we can trust that we will see it, but, but two, we can also see that Jesus has gone before us in that work. Um, and so uh, this, is, this is what it says. I'm just going to pick up in verse 5. It says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so today's sermon is just titled, Like Jesus. And, and as followers of Jesus, this is going to be a stretch maybe, actually it's not at all. As followers of Jesus, we should probably strive to be like Jesus, right? And so what we've seen in this first portion of chapter 2 is what it means or, or, or what it looks like to, to be like Jesus. We see Jesus very clearly in, in terms of his characteristics, in terms of the way he carries himself, in terms of the way he operates. And I think the, that the link that we see there is particularly helpful from verse eight into where we're going now, where it says that being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient. And what we talked about last week, just real briefly, was that, was that Jesus, right, equal with God, right, in heaven, enjoying all of the benefits that come with being equal with God in heaven, right? Became obedient and he humbled himself. He was obedient and that led to him humbling himself. He was obedient to God and thus humble to others, right? So he's equal with God. God says, I'm sending you, right? Jesus himself says, as the father has sent me, so send I you. So God sends Jesus. Jesus says, okay, I'm gonna go, but he doesn't come in glory or in power or in, or in anything rem- reminiscent of really what is due him. He humbles himself and becomes like a servant, right? And so what Paul's going to ask the Philippians to do, and I think obviously going to ask us to do, is to, to mirror that very much in the same way. And so verse 12 says this, Therefore, my beloved, so because, because of what we've seen in the example of Jesus, now, as you have always obeyed, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, <laughs> this verse, I think, has so many ways in which it can be read wrongly. Um, and I think it's, it's regularly misinterpreted in terms of what it is that Paul is actually asking the church at Philippi to do. Now, let's just break down this sentence. I think we're just going to have to spend some time here, right? This says, as you have always obeyed, right? So Jesus obeyed. So it's, it's pretty logical that we as followers of Jesus would also obey. He says, not, don't just obey when I'm here, but obey when I'm gone. And it says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So as Christians, we're called to obey. Not only that, we should measure soberly our obedience, right? Like knowing that God has purchased us at great cost, right? That's essentially what Paul is saying here. But there's two things that are two portions of this text that if we're not careful, we will begin to, to, to tread not on the firm foundation of Jesus' saving work on our behalf, and we'll wander into the quicksand that is, if I work hard enough, if I obey well enough, 
then I will secure for myself the salvation that we already know only comes from Jesus. Right, so here's what I want you to, to think about. This is how I want you to think sort of, of of this text and really of most of Paul's writing. Most of Paul's writing is this, by grace, through faith, not of works, so that none can boast. And then he says, but be obedient. You're no longer slaves to sin, but you are slaves to righteousness. Right, so, so we have a very clear like, Grace is all we have, all we owe our salvation to, and yet it does require something of us by necessity. And right, so we as people are people who always, always gravitate towards what I like to call the poles, like the furthest from from center, right? It's either this or it's this. We're very simple-minded in that sense. The gray area is not comfortable for us. And yet what Paul is doing with us in this text, I think, is drawing us to center, in that it's not so all about grace that you can just do whatever you want and nobody should impeach or, or call out any wrong in you, but it's also not you can, you can work hard enough and you can be good enough because neither of those things are true. It's somewhere, it's somewhere here in the middle, right? So let's talk a little bit about just obedience uh, in, terms of, in terms of being like Jesus, following in obedience, and then let's talk about what it means uh, when, he, when he says, work out, and then what it means when he, when he says, uh, fear and trembling. So I think just in general, there's kind of a, a we have obviously a cultural idea of, of God, like if there is one, right? There's sort of the, the, the caricature, I guess, of God in our culture, which is that he is, if he exists, he is probably just sort of uh, kind of a psychopathic narcissist almost, who's just out for a rigid devotion to his code or standard of morality. And that, and that really what he spends the majority of his existence doing is kind of peeking around the corner in your life and trying to catch you while you're not living up to that. And that, and that the moment that that does happen, that he just sort of gains glee and joy from saying, okay, I'm going to punish you. And for most of us, that punishment is, I locked my keys in my car, or, you know, the toaster kept toasting and my toast is on fire, you know, or whatever it might be. Like, and that's, that's how we picture just generally a relationship with God. Like, that's kind of how it is. Like, it's almost like God is Santa Claus kind of thing. Like, he sees you when you're sleeping, which is really creepy. Um, and Anyway, I'm getting off topic here, but it, that's, how we, that's how we tend to look at God. And so the obedience that, that, that Paul is talking about, and when he uses the word obey, this is sort of immediately the image that we conjure, right? It's, like, it's sort of like you have a bank account with God, and you're like, if only I could just get more, more debits than credit, or, or more credits than debits, that would be the right, the right way, um, right? But the gospel reality is that when we say we want to obey Jesus, we don't say it necessarily in the sense of like following the rules, but we say it in the sense that we want to come underneath the full reign and rule of Jesus's lordship. Right? So, so when we talk about obedience in the church and, and as we talk about being obedient to God, again, what we're not saying is that in and through that obedience, we accomplish anything for ourselves. What we're saying is that we step into the, the new city, like this new society, this new place, this new sphere of culture in which Jesus reigns and rules. 
and that under his reign and rule, we experience the peace, the joy, the life abundant that he has promised us, not devoid of pain, but through the pain, right? And so um, here's where we're going. He asks us, Paul asks um, the Philippians to be obedient. And, and what we'll see is, is really in the, the, the next point, we'll kind of talk about specifically what it is that, that Paul wants them to be obedient to, right? Like just as Christians, just, this is kind of a blanket rule. We, we can't go down this rabbit hole too far, but our entire lives are subject to Jesus's reign and rule, meaning there's, there's no sort of sequestered area or private space in which God has no jurisdiction here in my life right? Like, like he's purchased all of it, okay? And so we could talk about the implications of obeying Jesus for a really long time. That's why we're, there's always still something to preach, right? Because we can, <laughs> we can talk about like how it is that God calls us to steward our finances, how, 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 what it looks like to be obedient in, uh, you know, in your relationship with your parents, what it looks like to be obedient in our relationship with one another, like so many implications for this. Paul's going to give just one specific one, but he wants them to know that that obedience, again, is not something that is going to gain for them anything that they have not currently been given by Jesus. And so when he says this, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, there's, there's a couple things that I think we have to, we have to take note of. Number one, this, um, this difference between work out and work for. Right? So don't substitute, don't substitute the word out for the word for. Because when he's talking about work out, what he's saying essentially is, is like, get, get your hands dirty. Like, get in there, figure out how this whole thing, like, like accomplish or move in the direction of this, this thing. So when he's talking about working out, um, that's, that's what he's meaning. He's not saying you're going to, to purchase something for yourself through your obedience. Now, there's also a, a, a word that trips us up right after that when it says, work out your own salvation. Now, again, let's just recognize who we are, right? This is not, we don't, we are individualistic, like, that's just kind of our general posture, right? Like, very concerned with what this means for me, what, like, how do I interpret this? And while, while this absolutely has individual implications for us, we must remember that Paul here is writing to a group of people. He's writing to a church, much like our church. And he's saying, you all work out your collective salvation together. Right? Like, so that's what's, that's what's taking place here. He's saying, look, find out or, or essentially work through the implications of this faith that we share and work it out together. Now, let me just kind of, I'll give you a really, I think, hopefully, maybe not a poor illustration, but let's just think of it this way, right? At, at some point or not in your life, hopefully, you know, uh, you've received a gift of some consequence, right? Like someone has given you something of value, something that, that maybe even you desired greatly, Right? And for me, that was, uh, this was a long time ago. But for me, at one point, that was a Sega Mega Drive, which I don't know if you have a reference for what that is, but essentially it's like, it's like Super Nintendo, only worse. 
Um, it's kind of the, it's kind of the knockoff of like Super Mario, but you could play this game that, that I was particularly fond of called Sonic the Hedgehog, right? Um, and so anyway, I asked for it like enough that my parents just finally gave in. They were like, you know, if he'll be quiet, then we'll do this. Um, and so Christmas morning comes along, like that's all I've asked for. That's all I wanted. I open up, I, I open up the wrapping paper, you know, and there it is, of course, surely. Great parents, thank you, love you, awesome. Now, what did, what did I do with that gift afterwards, right? I'll, well, I'll tell you first what I didn't do. What I didn't do was, this is really nice. I'm just going to put this over here, and we'll just kind of leave it there, right? Like, it makes for a great box. It looks good. You can use it to put your drink on. I don't know, you know? Like, that's not at all what I did. The first thing I did was, mom, dad, like, where's the knife? Got to cut open all the weird things that they put in there to make it impossible to open, right? Open it all up, like, take out the instructions, read them. Kidding, because nobody does that, right? <laughs> like, plug it all in. Like, I'm, I'm trying to figure out every nuance of this, of this thing that I've been given, right? Like, I'm like, man, this is, this is fantastic. Like, I'm going to, how do the buttons work? How does this, where does this plug in? How do, hey, do you want to get in on this? How do, like, it was... It was a whole thing, right? And, and essentially, like, as silly as that illustration is, like, this is, this is exactly what, what Paul is telling the Philippians here. He's saying, look, you've received a gift of great consequence. And, and what you do when you receive gifts of great consequence is not just, like, like thank you, I'm just going to put it over here. No, like, he, he's saying, like, take it out, look at it, like, like feel it. Do what, like, do what any person would do when you receive something. Like, observe it, wonder at it, marvel at it, speak of its goodness, you know? Like, proclaim the glories of Sonic the Hedgehog, which I did for a while until I met Jesus, and he's infinitely better. Like, that's what, that's what Paul is saying when he's saying, work out yourself. He's essentially saying, hey, guys, let's all get around Jesus, Sega, and let and let's just like, let's just enjoy this. Let's figure out how this works. Let's find all the intricacies. Let's see all the cool things that are involved in this. And, and Paul's saying, look, there's obviously infinitely more in the gospel. There's infinitely more implications. There's infinitely more work to be done. And yet, he would not have us under the illusion that it is something that we have earned. And I think we'll see that in just a second. But so the question becomes this, right? If we're called to obedience and we're called to sort of this work, right? Two words that we just generally hate, obedience and work, right? And he's going to add on top of that, fear and trembling, <laughs> right? So this sentence just in general is awful. I want, you to, I want you to walk in obedience. I want you to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. What, it, what does he mean by that? Here's, here's what I believe Paul, Paul means by that. I think for the Christian, fear is asking Jesus this question. Are you sure that you meant everything that you said? Like the moment that I opened up that package and I saw that it was a Sega Mega Drive, the, the first thing that I said was, is this really mine? Are you serious? You know, like this is amazing. And, and if you've ever had that moment in your life, like you know, you're kind of like, oh, oh. Like, I don't, I don't want to break this. I don't, want, I don't want this thing to come to ruin. I don't want to lose it. I don't want it to be taken from me. I don't want to be removed from it. And look, this is, this is the same thing that's taking place right here. 
Work out your own, own salvation with fear and trembling. Look, the Christian knows that at any point, if God wanted to, he could just stop and it would all be over. Or that at any moment, he could say to you and to me, eh, I'm over you. Like that fickle girlfriend you had in like eighth grade or boyfriend. And yet, look, like, he may have the capability to do that, but he's promised us otherwise. And what God decrees comes to pass, right? And so when he says that Jesus has begun a good work in us, like, he's also told us that Jesus not only will begin that work and sort of leave it haphazardly, but that he will complete it to its fullness. And so we should be or should endure some sense of sort of fear and trembling because look, it's, it's all about him. It's all up to him. There's nothing that, that we can do. And we should be awed at that, right? Like that the God of the universe, the King of Kings would take upon himself flesh, dwell among us and become obedient, not just to death, but to death on a cross for you and me. And that in that action, that, that simplest of actions, really an action that we all experience, right? Death. That in that, he has purchased for you salvation according to his blood, according to his good work, and that you now have a righteousness that was never meant to belong to you, but is now all yours because he has said it is so. And so that should cause us to tremble at his sight at his power, that he can literally conquer death, not just conquer death, that he can conquer sin in you and not just conquer sin in you, but that he will remove sin entirely and completely from the world so that we will one day live in complete and total peace, rest. That's your God. That's the one who has called you son, daughter. That is, that is who you serve. So I think some fear and trembling is not a sign of, well, I don't know if I'm going to lose this, more so than it is a sign of, this is of great worth. If somebody, (laughs) I'm just trying to think of of things that would be helpful, but, you know, if if, if somebody, somebody were to put the Mona Lisa in your hands, say, hey, can you just hold on to this for a second? It would never happen, but let's just say it would. Like, what, what would you, I, I feel like, at least for me anyway, I kind of have shaky hands just in general. So I would just kind of be like, oh, um, you know, when are you coming back? <laughs> the sooner the better, because I'm liable to mess this thing up. And so I think it's the, the same thing that we see here. Now, this, for some of us, I think still sounds like a lot of responsibility, right? Like there's weight in this. We talked about that last week. Like there's just weight. Like God is calling us to a life that is, to be honest, like not super appealing. Again, obedience, work, fear, trembling, right? And yet, Paul is always so good at grounding us, right? Because the very next verse, if, again, if we were tempted to, to walk over this direction, like, oh, it really is about my obedience, Paul's gonna say in verse 13, no, 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 come back here. And he says this, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So here's the thing. 
It doesn't matter if you're a rigid legalist in the room, you have just that cold, dead heart of legalism, or, or whether you're just you know, way out here, the complete opposite side of the spectrum. Look, we're drawn together in, in this simple verse. Any good work, any righteous deed requires two things. That's what we see here, right? Two things that are required. One, the inclination to do that thing, right? So just like the general, like, oh, I think I, I, think I want to do that good thing. And then the second thing that it requires is, is the power or the means to do it, right? And what, what Paul tells us here is that, for those, at least for those of us who are Christians, both the inclination and the means not only belong to me as God, but they are given to you by me as God. Like, so, so when, we, when Paul says, look, walk in obedience as you always have, right? Not just in my presence, but also in my absence. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So it's clear, it's clear that we work out our salvation in obedience to God, not with fear of losing our salvation, but with reverent fear for the great cost at which we've been given it. So we want to be obedient like Jesus. And now, um, how, how is that going to play itself out, at least in this portion? I think the next two verses tell us what's happening. It says this, do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, right? So here's, here's what's going on, right? In obedience to God and likeness to Jesus, we should act in humility towards one another. That's essentially what he's, what he's saying. And in order for us to understand why this is important for the church at Philippi, we have to know what's happening. So there's, there's really, I think, two things that are happening at the church at Philippi that are significant uh, and that lead Paul to give this exhortation, right? Again, because obedience to Jesus could be any number of things, but he's going to specifically say, no grumbling, no disputing. And what we see and what we learn later on in the book is that there's some relational strife that's happening in the church at Philippi at this point. And I think there's, it's happening in two ways. One, just a general way in that, look, it doesn't matter where you go. If there are other people there, there is bound to be conflict. So I don't care if it's your gym, your workplace, the bagel shop, like there's, it do, you spend any amount of time like around people, conflict will arise. And then I think there's a very specific conflict in that later on, I think it's in chapter three, or no, sorry, chapter four, at the, at the conclusion of the book, um, he actually asks two women to like, to stop. He says, look, you, you guys, there's a dispute going on. We're not privy necessarily to the nature of the dispute, but the fact of the matter is that people in that church have taken sides and that never works out well, right? And so he says, look, I plead with these two women to ask them, like, brothers, sisters, help them to reconcile. And so I think that's specifically why, those two situations are why Paul is going to lead us from general obedience to Jesus to now don't grumble, don't dispute. Now, I think that we're going to do this or, or we're going to follow sort of the same trail that, that Paul is, is weaving for the Philippians because 
Again, I think that we have much in common with the church at Philippi, right? You, you have kind of a, a diverse people group. There's kind of some weird people involved, people that normally wouldn't, wouldn't hang out with one another, right? And if you're feeling accused by that, I wasn't calling you weird, all right? If, if anything, I'm weird, but um, right? <laughs> just got to know when to stop, um, we are becoming a more diverse people, right? There's, there's varying ages, varying family stages, varying races, varying backgrounds, varying fields of study, varying incomes, right? We see that uh, specifically at the church at Philippi. Like that's, that's what's happening there, right? It's also what's happening here. And also we're growing and changing and learning to follow Jesus as best we can really in a difficult context, right? In a place where it's like, it's not the, it's not the greatest place sort of to exercise your faith. Like we're not in some commune, out in the middle of nowhere, right? Where everyone's sort of like-minded and we're just zombieing it through life, right? And so um, I think this follows perfectly in line with the example, again, that Paul has given us from Jesus where it tells us that he, became, that he was obedient in, in even coming in the first place. And then, then that he humbled himself on behalf of others, right? So, so, so Jesus was obedient to God in that he, he received the sending and he said, okay, I'll go. And then the way in which he conducted himself towards others was with humility, right? So he wasn't like, okay, I'll go, but I'm gonna be a real big to-do. But that he went and that he was like, okay, I'm, like, I'm here to serve. You got dirty feet, I'll wash them. You hungry, I'll give you food. You sick? I'll give you rest, healing, right? Always, almost constantly at the beck and call of, of any person, right? People are just touching him, grabbing him, hoping like something will happen. This is Jesus's life, right? And yet in Jesus's life, we don't, we don't see a moment, at least not recorded. I mean, you know, we could speculate all we want, but we don't see a moment of, dang it. I just, you know, have all this stuff to do. Or man, you know, like I really just don't like Peter, which if you read, like if you read instances of, of like Peter in the, in the Bible, like I don't know about you, but to me, he just seems like a guy that I would not want to hang out with. Like he's kind of brash, like really forward, loud and obnoxious, you know, and I'm, I'm kind of more like reserved. I kind of like the, to, to be on the fringe of things like, um, I just feel like we would be like, it wouldn't work. And yet, and, and I mean, gosh, all the disciples, all throughout the, 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 the gospels are coming back to Jesus. Wait, what did you mean when you said that? And he's like, let me explain to you again. Wait, wait, what, what did you, I'm sorry, you said you were going to die? I'm confused now that you're actually dead. Oh, 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 you're back. Wait, how does all this work? Right? Like, just annoying. And yet Jesus, without grumbling, with great patience, without disputation, again, humbles himself for the sake of others. And so here's the application. I got to get to it. Um, (laughs) Look, people who want to follow Jesus recognize that our journey is always one towards the center, right? The center being Jesus. And so here's the thing. If we're all going the same place, like you're getting closer to one another too. Does that make sense? Like, 
Like we're all headed in the same direction. And look, I'm not trying to make some weird existential argument about like faith in general, where it's like God is a mountain and there's different trails to the top. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying that we are all coming to, coming nearer to Jesus. And that by necessity, that means that we're coming near to one another also. And that in order to do that, like we're going to have to set aside that which we would normally want to grumble about. That we're going to have to deal with our dispute in light of that, knowing that, look, like, there's no option here of like, okay, I, I'm pulling this car over, and I'm either A, kicking you out, or B, we're turning around. Like, that's, there's no option there. We're all headed towards Jesus. And so there's, there's just, with that in mind, like, do we just want to make the trip more miserable for one another? Or do we want to really step into, again, with humility, service of one another, considering one another more significant than ourselves? So here's what I would say. And just to draw it, like give you some real like practical handles. If you've been around Sojourn for a while and you have yet to visit a neighborhood parish, like this is where we will experience this. This is the place in which like, you will, you will actually step into obedience. And I don't mean because like you're obeying my directive to go to a neighborhood parish. I mean, you will be able to walk in obedience in that God has purchased for himself a people, a people that you belong to if you've called upon the name of Jesus for salvation and a people through whom God purposes to work for his glory. Like that's, that's it. And look, you're, no matter what I might say, which can probably actually often get uncomfortable up here, right? The fact of the matter is that you can go home and you can grumble and you can dispute all you want about that all throughout the week. And yet if you're daily in the lives of other Christians, like you're going to have a whole lot more opportunities to say to yourself, with humility, I'm going to choose not to grumble. I'm going to choose not dispute, but I'm going to choose unity in light of the gospel, right? So here's what, here's what happens here, right? This, this idea of doing things without grumbling, doing things without dispute, it determines how we handle division. It reevaluates the weight that we give to our own needs, our own feelings, our own desires, right? I mean, it changes, it changes everything. And so here's the thing. If you're if you're a Christian and, and maybe you go to another church or, or whatever it might be, I don't know. Um, let me just say this. Here's a litmus test for whether or not you, you find yourself in a, in a space in which you are confronted with your own selfishness, meaning Christian community. That's essentially one of the many purposes it serves. When was the last time that one, you had to ask for forgiveness and then two, that it was given? Because in that moment, like the transaction that's happening there, like that's, that's God's grace actually working itself out in a people, right? Like that's what's taking place. Your salvation is being worked out. God is drawing from you all that is impure and he is delivering to you that which is pure, right? Because in verse 15, he says, do this that you may be blameless and innocent. Children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. So what, 
what Paul is telling us is that if we strive to live these lives of gradually coming together, lives that because of the gospel will choose one another before our desires, then we will be utterly distinguishable from the world. Like that, that you'll be able to look at us as a people and say, they are different. That like much of what they are is irreconcilable with my perception of reality, how I believe things to be. The peace that they operate in is a peace which, again, I can't begin to fathom because there's nothing with the strength or the palpable nature of the gospel that produces any kind of peace close to that which the church should experience in Jesus. So this is not some isolated, like, figure out your salvation quick before you mess it all up. Rather, it's a collective journey toward working out the implications of what Jesus has accomplished for us and what he purposes to do through us. Now, you probably are wondering why I didn't finish that verse. Um, It says this, the last part of 15, among whom, right, so whom being the crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. So here's the question I think that we have to ask ourselves, like, is this really worth it? Right? I mean, because what, what Paul is asking us to do what, in light of what Jesus has done for us is utterly uncomfortable, <laughs> utterly difficult, utterly like against really all that we are by nature. And yet, Paul will go on to tell us, and what he tells us here is that this obedience to God that results in humility towards others leads us to lives that are both above reproach, distinguishable, and that as we submit ourselves to God and the good of others, the strength of our witness to the glory of God and the gospel increases. Like that, you know, I think light analogies are often pretty cheesy in church circumstances, but let's understand this. Like that your light shines brighter when we operate in this sphere. So, Again, let's just draw, let's draw it all out so that we're not confused in any way, shape, or form, right? Jesus does an individual work of salvation in people through the word of his gospel, right? He changes the individual. He changed my heart. And yet, that didn't lead me to sort of some further individualistic, ascetic faith, but it led me to a community of broken people who also experienced that redemption, And that God is going to use that people to make his glory known for his name's sake. And and so look, if, if that's the story, if that's what you and I have literally been bought into, what Paul is doing is saying, look, this is how you make much of Jesus. This is how the value of Jesus is magnified, shown, displayed before a watching world. And that as you walk in this obedience to God with humility for others, like you will glorify me. And so just like we can be like Jesus in obey, obedience, we can be like Jesus in humility. We can also be like Jesus in our glorifying of God. So I think that one of the, One of the things that came to mind when I thought about that, like that we can be like Jesus in that that God makes himself known through Jesus, right? 
And so God is going to make himself known through us, through the church. Like when I think about that, I immediately go to the moment where God looks down at Jesus and he says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And that you and I, when we, when we walk in light of the gospel with obedience to God and humility to others, that God actually says, this is my son, this is my daughter, these are my people in whom I am well pleased, well pleased to dwell. Now, I think there's two things that I want to just grab from this, like this understanding of light. So hopefully we can, we can start thinking of that in, in, less, in sort of a less cheesy way where it's like, shine your light out, you know, or whatever it is, right? Don't put it under a bushel. Um, but that we can actually begin to understand like the, the forcefulness with which this imagery should hit us. Right? Like light, so light does two things. One, it pushes back darkness, right? So it ensures that there is essentially less space in which there is darkness. But what it also does is it illuminates that which was dark. Now, if, if the church is this new community, this new place, this new city, the dwelling place for God, like when we shine the light of the gospel on our relationships, when we shine the light of the gospel through our relationships, two things will happen our actual city, like the, the living, breathing organism of the city that we live in right now will change in that darkness will be pushed to its outer recesses. But it also means that that which was dark will be illuminated, meaning those who were dead will come to life in salvation through Jesus. Meaning that those spaces in, which were not underneath the reign and rule of Jesus will come underneath the reign and rule of Jesus when the people of God walk in obedience to God, in humility to others, in light of the good news of the gospel. Like that that's what by necessity will happen. Now, again, I think a lot of us might feel weight in that. Like, at least I do, right? I think of, okay, I've got, I've got a, a church, essentially about 100 people or so, give or take a few, Right? Like we're responsible for pushing back darkness and, and illuminating that which was dark in our neighborhood. Like what, where do you even start? And yet I think that this verse 16 helps us out immensely. I'll take the, the latter half of 15 just to help us along. It says this, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world holding fast to the word of life. So look, I'm not saying any of this will be without difficulty. And if you look at the life of Jesus and you assume that you want to follow it, you'll recognize very quickly that his life was not characterized by ease either or wealth or excess or any of those things. And so, what I think we see from Jesus in his most like vulnerable moments, you know, like those moments where you're kind of like, I don't know how he's going to react to this. What we see Jesus do is we see him hold fast to the word of life. Like, so whether, whether he's in the desert and he's being tempted by Satan with, look, you, you can own all of this. Jesus goes back to the word of God and he says, no, I already own all of it. This all belongs to me. This all ends the way I want it to end. I'm going going back to the word of life. 
Or maybe, you know, maybe it's not just in the desert. Maybe it's in the Lord's prayer, right? Praying with confidence. Look, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And look, Jesus isn't praying that with like, your, your, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven? Like maybe? No, like he's declaring that, right? He's holding fast to the word of life. In Gethsemane, same thing. He's saying, look, if there's any way that we could do this another way, that'd be awesome. But if not, I know that what you decree comes to pass. Or maybe even it's after his resurrection when he's walking along the road and he hears two men talking and they're saying, man, I can't believe Jesus is dead. We thought he was the Messiah. What's the deal? And he goes back, he goes to them and he essentially says, all right, page one, let me tell you how all of this is about me. Hold fast to the word of life. Because look, the same scripture, right? The same letter even that calls us to great obedience, that calls us to great humility at cost to ourselves is also the one that says this, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Like that, that what God decrees comes to pass. And so no matter how little you see of obedience in our church right now, no matter how little humility you experience in your day-to-day relationships here at Sojourn, the fact of the matter is, is that we are on a journey that God will consummate. Not because I'm awesome, not because you're awesome, but because God is awesome. Like This is where you find yourself right? What God decrees comes to pass all the more in regards to verse 13. If it was up to us, we should be worried, but it's not. So we can walk in joy and confidence, which is what Paul is going to write next. He says, so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. So look, we, we kind of talked about this in the to live, is, to live is Christ, to die is gain text, right? Paul knows that as long as he draws breath, as long as he draws breath, his life is fruitful. And, and if you're a Christian in the room and you feel like you're in a place right now where you can't tell the forest from the trees and you don't know what the heck is going on in your parish and you don't know why you're experiencing strife with one another. Look, life for you is and always will be fruitful labor because it is God who works in you to will and to work for his good pleasure. Life is fruitful labor for us Jesus arrived at his death and he said, it is finished. We will arrive at ours and God will say, well done, my good and faithful servant. So I don't have time to dive into the whole rest of this section, but I do want us to understand what's taking place. Um, Timothy and Epaphroditus are essentially examples of this selfless nature of service that the Christian should walk in. That's, uh, That's it. 
right? I mean, he says, look, I want to send Timothy to you. Here's why. I have none like him because he considers your plight, not his own. He labors for the cause of Christ, not his own. And then he says something similar about Epaphroditus and that he says, look, he was willing to risk his life on your behalf and for the sake of the gospel, which just so you know, Epaphroditus was the, the man that the church at Philippi sent to Paul in prison to check and make sure he was doing okay. And he almost died during that portion. But, right? So this is Epaphroditus. He said, I'll be the one that goes, which travel was not quite as comfortable like at that point in history, right? It's like you could die on the way kind of thing. Um, that's the kind of man, that's the kind of sacrificial living that Paul is exemplifying in, in these first few verses. And there's, there's one striking thing that I would want us to observe before we, before we finish. And that is this. Paul is an apostle. Timothy is an elder. And Epaphroditus is just a church member. And so the call to live a humble, obedient life, the call to step into community rather than away from it. The call to step into our grumblings, into our disputes with grace and with humility is not just for the pastors. It's not just for the elders. It's not just for the apostles. This is not some super like up here calling. This is something that that we are all met with and we all have the grace of Jesus not only to give us the inclination to do that good work, but the power and the means to complete it. Let's pray.